Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to episode 19 of Sexology Podcast. I'm so glad that you're tuning in today. I wanted to talk about a topic that often comes up in my private practice. I would say 50% of the couples who are coming for couple therapy to struggle with sexless marriages. They talk about how this vicious cycle of pursuing and rejecting can impact the relationships and cause this bitterness and resentment toward their partner. And oftentimes when they come into the office, they're at the point that say, if it's not going to work out, I'm going to leave the relationship, which is very unfortunate because I feel it's very common and there are things you can do to address it. I was looking on the literature about how common it is. One study showed that one out of three couples, they struggle with problems associated with low sexual desire. The other study found that 20% of married couples have sex fewer than 10 times a year. So if you have this challenge, don't worry, it's common and there are things that you can do. I'm very excited to have Mrs. Lori Watson in our show. Lori Watson is a licensed marriage counselor and author of Book for Women with Low Libido called Wanting Sex Again. She lectures at the medical schools of Duke, UNC Chapman Hills, and sexual functioning. Her latest adventure is as podcasting producing foreplay radio sex therapy, where you and your partner can listen in on a frank and funny conversation with her male co-host designed to help couples keep it hot. She's a well-known blogger for WebMD and Psychology Today, 
with over 2.5 million readers. She owns Awakening Center for Intimacy and Sexuality, is a clinical director for nine clinicians and have three offices. In addition to sex therapy and marriage counseling, Awakening treats individuals and families with basic psychological services. Here's my conversation with Mrs. Lori Watson. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm delighted today that we have Mrs. Lori Watson with us. Mrs. Watson is a sex therapist certified by American Association of Sexual Educators, Counselor and Therapist, and a licensed couples therapist. As I mentioned during the introduction, we're going to talk about sexless marriages and relationships. This is a, often, a topic that I often hear you guys are interested to learn more about. First, I wanted to welcome Mrs. Watson to the show. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Oh, thank you for having me, Dr. Moali. It's a pleasure. Yes. Yeah, I was sharing with our listeners during the introduction that I read your book, Wanting Sex Again, and I think it was fantastic. It was full of great recommendation. I often recommend my clients to read it. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I really do. Um, I hope that it's a book that serves people not just in sexless marriages, but also people in many different phases of their marriage and their sexual relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It was so insightful and definitely we're going to get into it more, but about like exploring various dynamics. So I wanted to start with kind of checking with you about how important do you think sex is in a marriage? Well, I think that sex is deeply important. It separates us from a friendship. You know, a marriage is sexual. Uh, oftentimes, one person might have more importance, might feel more importantly about it than the other one. But I think in terms of connection, it's what, you know, it's glue. It keeps us passionate about each other. Absolutely. And I know for many people, it's a way of connecting I know that I had this couple a few weeks ago that I was working with. We've been working together for a while now, coming from a very conservative, like religious background. Right. And um, there was lots of conflict. And I was just kind of curious. I was trying to check in with them that, okay, what keeps you guys together? And I was shocked with the answer. They said, you know, our sex life is great. Yeah. So <laughs> as you were talking about, it seems like it's a, like a really can be a really important part of relationships. And I was kind of very happy and surprised with the answer. Yes, and, and it's unusual, right? Because most of the time when couples are disrupted, their sex life is also disrupted. It, it is the rare couple who has great hot sex, but finds there's their disruption otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I know it definitely can be impacted by their relationship and what's going on between couples. And I'm very glad that you think it's a big part of the uh, marriage because I feel sometimes people kind of put it aside. They kind of have it like, oh, if it happens, it's good, but they don't give it enough attention. And I think that's, yes, yeah. And based on my experience, unfortunately, if, and again, life happens, we all get stressed out, number of things can happen, but if it's going to be an ongoing struggle and people don't address that, that can lead to separation and divorce and lots of other issues. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it is usually more of an issue for one. And so sometimes as a counselor, you know, some counselors that are marriage counselors don't bring it up early enough and others, it sounds like yourself, 
know how important it is and bring it up right away so that, you know, the physical and the emotional connection between a couple can both be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always check in with the couple about when they're coming for couple therapy about their sexual relationship because I can think I think it provides lots of great information about various dynamics and the struggles. Absolutely. I mean, and it's such an inner part of ourselves, right? Our erotic life and what we think about, what we do in the bedroom is so, so deep inside of us. To, to not talk about it is to not really know the couple. Yeah, absolutely. And I know there are lots of like uh, stigma and shame and negative messages around that and kind of gets in the way of talking about it. And I know when we are as counselors and therapists, kind of when ask, we're asking about that, we give permission to our clients to explore those things. Uh-huh. And I think we start to model a way to talk about it easily and casually and healthy, you know, in a healthy way so that then they can go back and talk about it with each other. Right. So based on your experience, what causes, what are some of the causes of sexless marriages? You know, I think that there are many causes. Probably the primary ones, I think, are the resentment between the couple. You know, that it's actually a a place that they fight out a power struggle. There's more simple ones, which maybe the woman is not having an orgasm, or there are pain problems. Um, A lot of women who come from traditional backgrounds, you know, this is their very first introduction to sex and they're afraid, they don't have enough education about it, they don't know how to relax. That's kind of useless information. Well, just relax and it won't hurt, you know. But, you know, they really need help in having pain-free intercourse. So that can be one big issue. Um, Later, of course, with women, menopause can be a problem, sexual dysfunction for men, you know, erection problems or premature ejaculation. Those are big reasons that men shut down sexually. Um, So it's any number of things ranging from specific sexual dysfunction. Really, I see the biggest problem is the relational dysfunction. People not getting along and then, you know, shutting down. Usually a woman would say, you know, I I need more emotional connection and I don't feel that. And so then she doesn't want to be sexual because she needs that. And men often say, but I need sexual connection in order to feel that it's safe to open up emotionally. And and they're tied in this power struggle. Absolutely. And I see it a lot, like often as you were talking about that people coming in for like, you know, they say our main concern is sex. But I always start with exploring the relationship as well, because I know with many of my clients, the struggle starts with like relational, they don't feel connected. And then they use, as you said, because of their differences and their desire level, they kind of use sex as like they're withholding sex and the other person can get uh, frustrated and resentful. So they get into this power struggle. So I think that definitely can impact a relationship. And, and they might not even be withholding sex consciously. They, they just might not be able to feel very sexual because they're so upset about the lack of connection or their lack of being able to get through to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes men as well retreat sexually. Maybe they use pornography or, you know, that becomes their exclusive sexual release instead of the relationship. I mean, both genders can withdraw from the sexual relationship. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I feel there's this 
misconceptions that like, you know, it's always women who are like, you know, they have low desire. But in my private practice, and even when I was working in a hospital, I used to see there are lots of women that they struggle with that. You know, they are, they have hot more desire, they want more sex, and their partner are not kind of like, like they're not engaging in sexual behavior and they feel rejected and shameful. So it can go both ways, as you mentioned. Yes, I, I agree totally. I A lot of the women in my practice, I would say about 15% of my practice is made up of couples who the woman wants sex more than the man. And, you know, that is not our cultural stereotype, right? It's the other way around. But in truth, I think sometimes the woman does have more desire. Yeah, absolutely. And I think added to that is like, you know, the idea that women needs to be, they need to be reserved and, you know, you, you don't get to have desires, unfortunately, and some kind of traditional models. And when sh- she feels like, you know, she's initiating sex and the partner rejects her, that can be very painful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing you may talked about, you know, about like, you know, issues, sexual dysfunction issues. And I feel like, Many people, they don't know that there are like very solid techniques that they can learn from sex therapists. So that can be very helpful for them. And that can, they can feel defeated and that can be discouraging. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's so sad to me when I, when people come in and they've struggled for so many years to resolve something sexually that, you know, with a little bit more knowledge, it would have been resolved and they could have been happy. Research shows that people wait six years with any kind of marital problem before initiating with a counselor. And, you know, those are six years that are unhappy. And lack of orgasm is really the easiest problem to solve for women. And premature ejaculation is the most common sexual dysfunction for males. And it's also the easiest one to fix. You know, so here they are struggling and these are things that with some education, with some um, direction, could be better and they could be much happier. Yes. And I think as you were talking about when they wait uh, years and years, there it can be like, you know, there are multiple layers going to add it to what's going on the re- as far as the relationships. Sometimes, you know, people go outside the marriage. So it can get very convoluted and complicated. I, I agree totally. And you know, they can make up meanings in their head. Well, she doesn't climax because she's frigid or he uh, climaxes too quickly because he doesn't care about me. Things that are not true. But in order to find some meaning out of their difficulty, they make up these sort of scripts or summaries that are not actually the truth of what's happening. It's really simpler than that. But they're trying to make some meaning in it. And then oftentimes that's another layer, as you said, that has to be untangled. Yes. And I I love when you talked about, you know, we have different language for sex life and lovemaking. And I know some some of my clients, the way for them to connect is connect sexually. And some other people, they need the emotional connections before making the sexual connection. When there is this disconnect... What do you recommend people to usually to do? Well, I think the first thing is to begin to analyze where it goes wrong. Oftentimes, you know, a couple will initiate in the wrong way. Perhaps for her, she likes sex to be initiated with physical touch. She she wants him to come up and hug her 
or cuddle her in bed. And instead, he's a little nervous. So he asks her, you know, do you want to have sex tonight? And she feels cold about that because it, it isn't the warm way she likes initiation. The first way is to begin to talk about how does each of them initiate and what is their favorite way? What feels the best to them? Because, you know, sometimes it's just off. Uh, one person is verbally initiating when really they should be physically initiating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just talking about it and kind of like start the conversation early on is really important because one one thing that I sometimes see in, among couples is that they don't address it. Then the sex becomes like, you know, very like in the year they engage in like very few occasions they engage in a sexual behaviors and it turns becomes this awkward things that kind of like, you know, just which creates more distance. So I think like when people start kind of noticing this is that this can turn into a challenge, it's a good time to start the conversation. Absolutely. I, I think all couples should go through the who, what, when, where, why kinds of conversations. So who do they believe should initiate, you know, many traditional cultures? And, and there is, as you mentioned, some bias even in American society that the woman should not have desire. So therefore, she should not initiate. And yet, you know, that could be very useful. Um, he could feel loved. He could feel like she was expressing her attraction to him. Uh, but maybe she's gotten the messages over time not to. And so a discussion about that is helpful. Who initiates? When do you initiate? You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm a morning person and my partner's a night person. And you know, I, I always laugh at that. I'm like, well, what about noontime? You know, <laughs> you're together on Saturday and Sunday, aren't you? At least then. And, you know, there's plenty of time to make love and what you do in bed. You know, how do you know, especially as young lovers, how do you know what each um, lovemaking time will hold? You know, is this a rough and ready time? Is this a, you know, a quickie? Is this a time that we have a luxurious moment? that we really love each other's bodies thoroughly. I mean, it's it's hard to, to know those things and to develop an erotic specific language about desires, let alone how each person wishes to be touched. I mean, that's so vulnerable, right? To To be able to say, this is how I like it. I want you to do more of this or I want you to do more of that. You know, it's exquisite vulnerability and and none of us have really been taught how to do that. Yes, and I think not having enough or proper sexual education get, can be very tricky. I know in your book you were talking about 2020 rules, and I was laughing about it, which was great because some people think that because of like they, they got their sex education from pornography, that you know at the moment you start like lovemaking, it's on within few seconds you can go like move on to penetration. And it's just, it becomes such a surprise for them that it takes, a, sometimes it takes a while for people, especially some women, to get in the mood and kind of start like tuning in with what's going on. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's such important sexual information, the difference in terms of how different a man and a woman are in their arousal and how much time it takes. A man can see his wife come out of the shower and he can have a, an erection and be ready for penetration and very quickly for orgasm. Whereas a woman, you know, most of the time she needs about 20 minutes of letting go of her day. And that means 
maybe being naked in bed or undressing or talking or starting to detach from her list, right? The list of all the things she's got to do. That's that's a big hang up for women. How do I stop that from going through my head when I'm supposed to be thinking sexual thoughts? And there's about a 20 minute transition that a lot of women do not really even like to be touched directly. They don't want their genitals or their breasts to be touched during that time when they're starting to get in the sexual mood. And then most women on average, need about 20 minutes of direct clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. And of course, pornography makes it look like every woman reaches orgasm through sexual intercourse, which we know is not true. I mean, only about 15% of all women reach orgasm through sexual intercourse. And I I think that, I'm going to say that one more time. (laughs) That's very important. Yes, please. (laughs) Only 15% of all women reach orgasm through sexual intercourse. And that just leads to gobs of misunderstanding. Women feel inadequate. Well, I, I can't get there the right way. And men feel inadequate. Maybe she doesn't orgasm because I'm not big enough or I can't last long enough. And the reality is, is her clitoris needs to be stimulated for a very long time for her to catch up with the male arousal pattern. It's like she's climbing a mountain, you know, hiking up this mountain, and he took the gondola, and he's already (laughs) at the top. Right. I love that analogy. And I think it's just, you know, it's so like if you're married for a long time, I know there would be sometimes no matter what's going on, you might not reach orgasm. But I feel if that's a pattern, ongoing pattern that you don't necessarily get pleasure out of sex, like naturally you're going to get disappointed. So it's very important to kind of address that. Yes. If a woman doesn't have orgasms, then she's not going to have desire. I mean, her, you know, why would you want to do it if there's no physiological reward? I I agree with you that there are nights that a woman might say, you know, it's not my night and I'm too tired, but I would love to be with you and make love to you. and And I love feeling warm with you in this way. But as a pattern over time, if she doesn't have orgasms, she's really not going to be an interested party. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, if you don't get orgasm, then you're not necessarily going to experience desire. So that definitely impacts the entire dynamic of what's going on in the bedroom. That's right. That is absolutely right. One other thing that was in the book that I found very interesting, you talk about pursuer and distancer dynamic. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, I think this is the heart of the struggle that is relational and and it gets fought out sometimes in the bedroom. And that's that oftentimes, you know, we need two things. All of us need two things in life. Uh, We need to be connected with our partner to love and be loved. And we also need autonomy where we have respect for our own direction, our own purpose in life, our our job responsibilities, the responsibilities of raising our children, that's, that's our work. So love and work are the two areas that are very important to us. But in a marriage, frequently one person kind of seems to corner the market on one area and their partner on the other. So, so let's say one person who I call the pursuer um, is very concerned with closeness and connection. And they want more time together. They want family time and relational time, the closeness. And the other person, once married, kind of says, okay, check, I've done that. Now I need to get on to the business of 
uh, building my financial security. And so they get very preoccupied with their purpose. And it, it can be either gender. I mean, probably traditionally when uh, women were staying at home, they might get preoccupied by the raising of children and men might be you know, preoccupied by their business. Um, but it can go either way. And frequently in heterosexual couples, there's a flip-flop. The man is the sexual pursuer. So he he wants to be connected in bed, but he's not quite as interested in talking and relational closeness. He would rather spend that time earning money and building his business, whereas the woman very frequently needs that emotional connection, closeness. She wants to talk and spend time together, but ironically, she's not as interested in spending time in bed. So she becomes the sexual distancer. She's the emotional pursuer, but the sexual distancer. He is the sexual pursuer, but the emotional distancer. Yeah, I mean, they're in a trap, right? Because the good news is they both want something from the other. And, and that's easier to resolve when both of them have some motivation. You know, what they need to do really is the pursuer in the beginning kind of seems exciting, like, oh, they're chasing me. That's wonderful. But over time, their fear and worry about not getting enough starts to enter their mind. So let's think of the sexual pursuer who says, you know, well, we had great sex on Saturday night, but now it's Wednesday. And we may never have great sex again, and we're not having it frequently enough. And now I'm really anxious and worried. And I start to pester my partner, you know, when are we going to have sex again? And do you not like sex? And why do you not want to have sex with me enough? And pretty soon my pursuit becomes critical. And my partner, when the pursuit pushes forward, they automatically back up. It's like, wow, you're asking so much for sex. You know, is that all you want from me? You, you know, you don't really know me. You don't really love me. You just want my body. All this stuff starts to be enacted. And ironically, the pursuit ends up pushing the partner further away. And so that other person becomes distancing. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I think it's just fascinating. And they get kind of stuck in this loop. Yes, they get stuck in a loop. And so then the question is, how do we get out of this loop? And sexual pursuers often say, okay, great. I just won't ask for sex again. You know, I'll just forget about it. But of course, that's not realistic. And we know that they still do want sex. And so... Even if they're not talking about it, there's this intrinsic pressure. Um, so it really has to be done vulnerably. You know, pursuers have to ask for what they want and distancers, instead of criticizing, and distancers learn, have to learn how to nurture and feed their partner instead of their reactivity of backing up. No, it up that absolutely makes sense. I think that's just very interesting. And I feel, you know, if when people are not able to identify this cycle and then when they're kind of like in that cycle, they can build up so much resentment and frustration. And yeah. the conversation sometimes turns so toxic. Yes, it does. Yeah, I love when you were talking about vulnerability because then they start like some some couple I work with, they turn to shaming and kind of like demanding and that kind of makes the partner feeling shut down and and like they want to back up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't please you anyway, so why should I try? Right. You know, if your listeners would like, I do have a tool on my website, which is awakeningscenter.org. And we have a love and sex test. And they can take that and it, it 
shows them which one they are, if they are a sexual pursuer or distancer, and if they're an emotional pursuer or distancer, and it gives them some guidelines, first steps to take so they can start changing their relationship immediately. I, I do not get the answers. The answers <laughs> are, are private for the person taking the test. I do capture their email if they would like that, and we put them on our newsletter. But they are free to do that. And I think that it's a very helpful tool to begin to define for themselves, where am I? And maybe even ask their partner, you know, would you take this too? But I can almost guarantee once you define yourself, more than likely your partner is simply your mirror opposite. You know, if you're a sexual pursuer and an emotional distancer, then probably your partner is a sexual distancer and an emotional pursuer. It's, it's almost always a mirror. Yeah, and what a great tool. I'll make sure I leave a link on the show notes because you're right. It's very important for people to recognize where they are because sometimes we were in the midst of it. We're not able to kind of see what's going on. Right. All we can see is what our partner does wrong, right? We can see the way our partner drives us crazy, but we don't really understand how we might be playing into that dynamic. It, it, it takes a lot of maturity, to begin to examine our own behaviors and say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm backing up. And the backing up person is the person who is not doing something. The pursuing person is the person who's doing something. And so we say, well, I'm not doing anything. It's like, but that's the problem. You know, sometimes you need to do something. If you're a sexual withdrawer and a distancer, sometimes you you really do need to do something, which is to learn to find your own erotic self and bring that forward so that your partner feels nurtured and fed and not so anxious about, you know, the sexual supply is not there. I'll, always, I'll never have enough. It's like actually when you initiate sex, if you're a sexual distancer, when you do find the moments inside that you feel sexual, it actually will relax your partner. And the same thing emotionally. It's like, well, you know, I'm just tired of the fighting. It's like, right. But initiate a conversation of interest, of curiosity. Tell me about your day. Tell me the most important thing to you right now. What is the deepest thing that you're experiencing in your life right now? Find a way to be curious and enter an emotional conversation with your partner if that's the way they need love. Yes, I think just showing genuine interest is very important because I know, again, it goes back to like how people kind of express their emotion. I know with some couples, for example, a guy would say, you know, I already provide for the family. I, sh- I, I kind of like, you know, do everything in this life. So I don't necessarily, I show her how I feel. But again, some people, they need to hear it and kind of like make the verbal connection. Yeah. And I think we want to give love in ways that we find important. So you know, certainly doing things for your family, providing for your family is a gift. It is an act of love. However, if you're married to somebody who finds that spending time together is the way that they most deeply feel loved, all your provision, uh, it's not that it's wasted effort. It's just that it doesn't touch the heart in the same way that spending time with her might. Or, you know, if you say, I had a, a client once, a a woman and her husband was turning 40 and they were in therapy with me for sex therapy. And we talked about the ways that his primary love language was sex. 
And so, of course, everybody knows you you get sex on your birthday and especially <laughs> on your 40th birthday, right? Yes. <laughs> she, she came into the session the next week. He was very angry and upset. And, of course, I knew what had happened. But she said, you know, I took the whole day off. And I took my three-year-old to the grocery store and we picked out the flour and the sugar and we made a cake for daddy. We spent all afternoon making a cake for daddy. And my little girl was delighted and was so excited. And when my husband came home, you know, she presented him with the birthday cake. And it was this wonderful little birthday party that we had. And then, of course, her husband said, let me put the baby to bed. And when he came out, guess what? She was exhausted. <laughs> she was asleep. You're right. And and she had, you know, I said to her, you know, that sounds like a lovely day. But it was a day for you. It was a day that you spent with your daughter. It was not a thoughtful way to give, you know, your husband a gift. Because your daughter would have been just as delighted if you had gone to the bakery, picked out a cake. She, you know, let her pick out the cake. She would have been just as excited and happy, and you would have had some energy to be sexual with him, which is really the deepest way he felt love. Right. And it's very important, again, to kind of have in mind that what, what would make, like, when it's like, we want, we want to give a gift of sex to someone or like in a relationship, what, and having in mind that what would be kind of, what's the style, like sexual style of our partner? Right. And I think you're bringing up some important things. The sexual style can be very confusing. You know, we've talked about how women need this long 40-minute, 2020 kind of solution to be orgasmic. And yet, sometimes for men, that's a lot of physical energy. I would say that men put out an equal amount of physical energy to the psychic energy that women have to put into their lives in order to feel regular desire, you know, because women have a hugely different amount of testosterone than men do. You know, men have enormous amounts of testosterone in their body that pump them full of sexual thoughts, you know, all day. And women have very, very little. So she has to put psychic energy into having desire to be an enthusiastic partner. But Sometimes in style, you know, it, it might be nice if if you were male to be able to do what I say is stop, drop, and roll. Just every once in a while, just hit it, you know, and have fun with it. <laughs> right. If like this is something going on for years and years, something sometimes it as I talked about, I know we talked about it earlier, and it can be kind of very toxic. I had this client early, like this morning, and there was a struggles around sexuality and the wife was sharing with us in the couples therapy that, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm starving. It's like, you know, I'm starving for food and the only person who can provide the food is my husband. She wasn't like that. She was very traditional and she wanted to get her needs met in right. the relationship. And she said, you know, and he's withholding it. And this is cruel. I was so frustrating. And as you were talking about like the sense that it was kind of very detached and kind of like, not who wasn't willing to hear it so what can couple how can they heal from this like sexless marriage cycle mm -hmm. I, I mean I think you bring it up from the opposite gender as I just described um, this big problem I mean it sounds like I would explore what he feels about it I mean many men withdraw for different reasons than women withdraw from the sexual relationship I might ask him 
Does he feel criticized by her? You know, men are so sensitive that I think the biggest fear of a man coming into sex therapy is that he's going to be told he's not a good lover or he's going to be told that he's not adequate in size. And and he's terrified. And so many times men in the beginning kind of feign indifference because it's really protective from their anxiety about somehow or another being shamed when they come to sex therapy. And so I think, you know, as counselors, we we have to help draw them out um, to find out what the real reason is, why they have withdrawn. Um, You know, did they have maybe a time of premature ejaculation? And so they are a season of that. And so they feel so embarrassed about it that they've decided not to be sexual. Maybe she said something. Maybe she expressed disappointment. And he's like, okay, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm never going to try that again. Or is it that, you know, the marriage is so disrupted with relational struggles that even he just can't enter into it sexually with joy, and so he doesn't? Or does he feel ashamed of his masculinity and his kind of base desire he's been taught? You know, those are negative, bad things, and he doesn't know how to channel it into a constructive, positive direction. So I, I think it... It's the process in the beginning of, you know, helping a male client feel safe first, that he's not going to be made to feel ashamed in sex therapy. And I think sex therapists are very good at that, right? We, we work with both, both genders. We understand the vulnerabilities of both. So I think the first is what causes this? Or, you know, maybe with an older male client, have you had testing? Is your testosterone at adequate levels, because that's the first thing I check with a man about 40 years and older. I want to make sure that his blood work is on track and that he has adequate testosterone because testosterone, again, is the hormone that governs physiological hunger in both male and female. So so that might be a step. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of addressing it in more a non-shaming way and like exploring like physiological possibility, psychological possibility, because you're right, like shame, especially around sexuality can be a kind of like, can foster the sense of like a cultivated sense of like freezing and terror and about like, you know, kind of helping people like not to open up. So I absolutely get that. Right. And the same would go with a female who was saying, I I don't, have as much desire as my partner. I don't want sex. I mean, many women have told me, I never want to have sex again. I don't care about it. I just, it's not important to me. And it's like, oh, you know, it just cuts me to the quick because I think, how can you say you love your partner and not care about the things that are so essential to them, right? It's not true. We can't love someone if we don't care about how they feel loved. And so, you know, maybe we begin to explore with her, was she, uh, did she ever have an erotic experience where that was good? Is she having orgasm? Does she, you know, does she feel inadequate? I think the two things that shut women down personally are lack of orgasm and her body image problems, you know, where she doesn't feel adequate. I don't look like I should. I'm, I'm too fat. I'm not fit enough. I'm had babies and I have these stretch marks or in some way that she judges herself inadequate physically. And so she no longer wants to be naked with her partner or her husband. Uh, you know, so we have to work through those things in order to get them back on track sexually. 
self-image is I can see it often mostly for women and also men that can can get very challenging and tricky because if we're not feeling good about our body, it's kind of hard to engage in what's going on in the room during sex. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And especially men who are watching pornography, they imagine that that's what men really look like. And those are, that is generally not how women, uh uh-oh. That is generally not how men look. You know, the genitals in pornography are usually very exaggerated. And most men, you know, when they watch that, they begin to worry, gosh, am I not adequate? Is this, you know, what is wrong with me? You know, maybe if I were looked this way, you know, she would be throwing herself at me. And and that's crazy. But unfortunately, pornography distorts the way men and women really find pleasure and make love with each other and the way men and women look, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can talk about it for hours. And again, I love your book. I love all the resources you have. And I bet many of our listeners, they would like to, they would like to connect with you. So what would be some of the ways for them to uh, contact you or kind of learn more about your wonderful resources? Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Maoli. I have a podcast as well. It's called Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. And it's myself and another male clinician, Dr. Adam Matthews. And we do this um, every week. We talk about one issue in sexuality that committed couples are struggling with. So it's really a podcast to help committed couples keep it hot. And it's Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. You can also find me on awakeningcenter.org. And that's where my love and sex test is. And I blog for Psychology Today in Married and Still Doing It. With WebMD, it's called Second Opinion, Healthy Sex. So I'm, I'm out there. I'm written the book. I write blogs. I'm on a podcast. And I'm very pleased to have been your guest. I mean, it sounds like you have a wonderful following, both in Farsi and English. And, you know, that's you're just doing a wonderful work to educate people. Thank you so much. And again, I'll make sure I put all those great information uh, on the show notes. And again, you're definitely a wonderful resource. And thank you so much for providing all this great content. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope my conversation with Mrs. Watson help you to kind of gather some information about things you can do to address this challenge in your marriage. I want you to keep in mind that sex is an extremely important part of marriage. I'm not talking about how often you're doing it, but I'm talking about connecting with your partner and your love in the love as a lover. It's such a nurturing part of the relationship. And it's not about just giving and receiving physical pleasure. For many people, it's about to connect emotionally and spiritually. At the end, I wanted to thank all of you for listening. You know, it makes me so happy when I hear from you, when I see that you left a written review on iTunes. So please, please take a moment and share your thoughts, your uh, inspiration, what you're doing, either on iTunes or you can email me at Dr. Maoli at Sexology Podcast. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help 
from a licensed mental health provider.